Marini's Media. Yes, hello and welcome to this week's Totally Football League show, Extra Time, brought to you in association with Paddy Power. I'm Ali Maxwell, on the line with me, George Ellick. We've got a busy old show ahead today. George, talk me through it. Yeah, not one, not two, but three guests on the show today. First up, we're speaking to Bristol City manager Dean Holden after their perfect start to the championship season. Then two athletic writers, firstly Paul Taylor talking about Sabri Lamucci departing Nottingham Forest and being replaced by Chris Hewton and then Jack Pitbrook on Thomas Sandgard's purchase of Charlton Athletic. We're previewing our favourite games from League One and League Two with our sponsors Paddy Power and we're discussing off-pitch matters as well as the EFL, the Premier League and the FA write an open letter to the government around letting fans back into football and a petition gets over 100,000 signatures on the same topic as well. You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell, sponsored by Paddy Power. Well, it's been a whirlwind start to the delayed 2020-2021 season and the championship now breaks for an international break. So the dust settles somewhat and we can uh, take a look back at the first four games of the championship season. So it's pretty handy uh, and a great honour to be joined by the man in charge of the side at the top of the championship, Bristol City, one of two teams at the at the level to have a 100% record. Uh, and Dean, you took caretaker charge towards the back end of last season. Uh, there was a, a recruitment process for the new head coach in the summer where you were given the job after a fairly lengthy process and you've hit the ground running this season with four wins from four. Uh, how do you reflect on the summer and the start to the season and what an amazing start it's been? A really good question, actually. We were how do you reflect? That's exactly what we're doing at the moment in terms of the, we've got the first four league games out of the way. Now we're now we're on reflection of, of them previous four and, and obviously looking forward to Barnsley after the international break. But yeah, going back before that, it was it was chaotic to be honest. It was when Lee left uh, immediately after the, the Cardiff game at the, after lockdown last season. It was very difficult, of course. It was strange time for the club. We, we'd finished lockdown and not had a great run of results in fairness. And Lee unfortunately lost his job and I'd worked with him for four years at this club and obviously previously with Oldham Athletic. So that's always really tough because uh, you obviously build really close relationships with people. So that took a, a day or two to get my head round, to be honest with you. It was, it was quite a really strange time. And then and then it was a case of professional focus and we've got five games left and we need to finish this season as strong as we possibly can for the sake of the football club, the supporters. And players were in and out of contracts and things like that. So we we did OK in them final five games. We... Uh, we got some decent results, a couple of good performances out of the players. And, and then, as you say, the recruitment process started and did go on for, I think it was around six weeks and there was rumours and me, like everybody else, is reading things and hearing things and never quite knew how it was, how it was going to pan out. And I'll say what I said at the time, which was that I was, and I still am really pleased that the club did that because I was obviously the assistant manager under their noses from day one. It would have been easy to just go, go on, he's done okay for five games, we'll rush into an emotional decision. And they didn't do that. They went and interviewed. And I know exactly how many, and, and I know exactly every single name that was interviewed. And um, I'm glad they did it because they got to sort of cast the net, see what they were after as a football club, which direction they wanted to go in. And fortunate for me, when I got the phone call, um, I'd been offered the job. It was uh, yeah, it was quite an emotional um, moment, to be honest, for me and my family. It was an incredible, the proud moment, the proudest moment in my career. Um, and then quickly you're back into them, right, recruitment is massive. We've got some games to organise and the lads have been brilliant. We brought five new signings in who I've been delighted with. Two new assistant coaches have joined me as well who, who we got from the FA, which I think is a real coup for the football club. And then 
then it was a case of starting the, the season as quickly as we could, as well as we could. And, and the players have performed very, very well, I have to say. And uh, not just the players that have started the games, there's been lads coming off the bench impacting games. And at the moment, it's about building a real team spirit that's going to take us through this through this season. So we had a nice steady start. We're now going to the break, as I said, and, uh, and now it's about reflection for, for us as a staff and the players relaxing for a few days and then as I say, full focus on uh, trying to go five from five against Barnsley. <laughs> well, yeah, the season couldn't really have started any better for you. And it's not just the results that have caught our eye. It's an attractive 3-5-2 system that's also come in for praise. And the renewed form of Jamie Patterson and Andreas Weiman playing in an unfamiliar kind of advanced midfield role. Where did the thinking for the tactical switch for the system and for the for kind of the personnel style changes come from? Again, uh, my first game in charge after the, I was announced caretaker, we, we played at home against Hull City and it was a case of, right, who's available fitness-wise and, and having a look at that. And, and, and Pato and Andy went in there and performed very well. And they're both really, really strong team players for different reasons. Andy Vyman is a, would, ch- would chase everything on the pitch. He impacts games with goals and assists. And he's a complete and utter team player. Pato the same, but again, affects the game in, in different ways. It, there might be spells in a game where Pato's not seen a lot of the ball, but you know he's got a game-changing moment in him. So, again, both really open-minded. I had conversations with the two of them. And it was there was no tactical, you know, it doesn't work like that. It certainly doesn't for me. I don't wake up one morning and go, oh, yeah, there's my next genius idea. <laughs> um, we looked at a few things in training um, and we rolled with it. And it was a case of them five games. I think there was no pressure on the players in them five games. Everybody thought the playoffs was finished anyway. So, it, you know, to an extent, it was a little bit, from a player's point of view, let's go out and put in some performance and see where it takes us. So, um, no, I stuck with it for the start of the season. I had a good look at quite a few players and we have got a lot of players in them positions. We've probably got eight, nine, ten players in them positions who could play there. So, um, they're the two that we've gone with. I like to keep a settled team as much as I can, as long as them players are performing. And unfortunately, that's what that's what's happened. Dean, one of the things that we have enjoyed over the last five, ten years of, of Bristol City's development is how well the club has done uh, in recruiting players. Now, that also means in selling players for a lot of money, but in, in the succession planning and in bringing uh, good quality players in. Uh, they've also got a great record of signing and developing in-house uh, young players uh, and uh, and what that sometimes means is it can be difficult when signing first team players sort of ready to go to find the spots for those talented young players that maybe haven't had first team minutes yet. But, you know, as much as you mentioned, you signed five first team players and it was a, a decent sized squad already. There are young players thriving in the team. Taylor Moore obviously had some game time last season, but Tariq Backinson uh, has come into the side for the first time after a few loan deals and thrived. And Zach Viner has been part of a back three as well, who's, who's always kind of been on the fringes, but never quite broken into the first team. So how, how have they forced their way into your reckoning, despite the fact that you've got such a strong squad uh, elsewhere as well? Through the performances in training and in pre-season games and through their attitude and willingness to to want to learn, want to improve, want to, want to take this team, this club where it needs to get to. Simple as that. We we sat down on day one of, of, um, of pre-season and I, and I spoke to the, the players and, and staff as a whole and said, I'm not really interested on how many career appearances you've got, what your status might have been previously in terms of star player and all that, whether a young player coming through the system. Everybody is now, and it's the biggest cliche you ever hear from any new manager, it's a clean slate, but it really was a case of opportunities for these guys. So, a lot of work's gone in before I took over at the club. The, for these, as you mentioned there, Tyreek Backinson, I think, is a, a brilliant example. Zach Viner as well. 
They've had loans previously. Max O'Leary, the goalkeeper that's played against Aston Villa and, been, and done an incredible job in that game. Two, three, four years ago, they've had loan deals at, at the lower end of the pyramid in terms of teams and clubs around the, the sort of Gloucestershire, Bristol area down south. And they have to get them loans right for them to flourish. And they do all right for six months and then... We've got Brian Tinian in charge of that with the academy who look at that and go, right, there's the next option for him. Let's put him there and see how he does in that environment. And it's only if you get them bits right at that time that Tyreek then ends up last season at Plymouth in League Two, did brilliant. They were desperate to take him again in League One. And he come to see me on day two and said, where'd you see me this year? And I said, well, like I said to you yesterday, you, you know, it's your spot if you go and take it. Get everyone else out of the old way and go and grab that shirt. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, it's as simple as that. It's just giving them the opportunity to, to go out there and flourish and Again, another. If I heard someone else saying this, I'd, I'd be horrified about being the best, best version of yourself. But that, that that literally is it. It's coming together every day, whether you're in the starting team, whether you're on subs bench, whether you've been took off after an hour because we needed to change it. It's all about the team and all about getting this club where it needs to be. So at the minute, as I say, we're building a really nice spirit. And the experienced guys that have come in, in, in Chris Brunt, Chris Martin, Alfie Mawson, they're there to supplement these youngsters because... Again, you spend a lot of time on away travel, on coaches in hotels, around the training ground, just for these youngsters to look at Chris Brunt, who's got 60-odd international caps, Alfie Mawson. They've all had promotions to the Premier League as well, as of the two assistant managers, which I thought was really important. They've been on that journey. So, again, these young lads are learning from them every day. It's not all coming from the coaches. It's learning from the players around them in the dressing room and setting the right standards. Dean, this isn't your first taste of, of management after a difficult spell uh, at Oldham Athletic. What did you learn from that experience and, and coming into this, you know, at a, you know, a classically bigger club in a higher league and, and expectations surrounding it? What did you try and bring from that experience into this role to improve? It's interesting, George, you say difficult spell. It's, looking back now, I wouldn't have dreamt to have had a better experience. I think life's all about like, actually feeling the emotions of doing something. We Obviously, I do the coaching badges, the pro licence was, was brilliant. And it's all sort of mock, you know, a mock interview for this job and then you have to pretend to drop this player for the cup final. And it's all good stuff and it's getting you out of your comfort zone. There's nothing like feeling that raw emotion of making them decisions. And there was a lot of things, and I think it's panned out in, in, in recent years, in fairness, when Paul Scholes was there. And there's a lot of things behind the scenes which maybe it wasn't be as run as professionally as, as, as it possibly could. Of course, finances dictate that, I understand. So there was a lot of challenges in terms of of keeping that chemistry and stuff within the team, which I, again, think is, is really important. So that was just in flight, learning on the job, trying to do as best as you possibly can. Within games, I remember we went down to Yeovil, we, we were winning, we had a man sent off, we got back into the game and then I'm right, go on, we'll go and try and nick a win at the end and, and we ended up losing and it goes on the record, it was another, whatever. It's experience that you learn. And, and in fairness, I said at the beginning when I took this job, I, I want to try and go into every game trying to win. We're not going into games aiming not to lose. Of course, there'll be times in games when you might need to just protect something late if, you, if you're not playing as well as you want. But you know, we always try and get the players on the front foot and try and play, in, uh, as you said before, in, in that system and in an attacking way. In the interest of full transparency, Dean, um, yourself and I exchanged some messages after we spoke about your start to the season on Sky last Friday yeah. night. And, and on that segment, we were asked if our expectations for your season had changed um, from our pre-season predictions and said that it probably had. So what I'm interested to know is, <laughs> is as, as you're reflecting on, on such a good start, but with 42 games still to go, uh, has your own expectations for this season changed based on the way that the side has started the campaign? No, not at all, no. Um, again, I just when I took the job, I was asked the same question and where do you want to finish? Everybody wants to know that golden answer to it. Well, we're in this division to win. 
And that's not to say that that can be maybe even be possible, but why would you try and get a group of players going out every week, going into something thinking that they're not quite the best? So we want to be the top of the pile. As much. <laughs> it's as simple as that. We're, we're in this game. It's a challenging industry. We want to win. Um, where we'll end up at the end of the season will we'll be dictated by our, the way that we conduct ourselves throughout the season. Uh, we've had a good start. And we want to. Be, we want the, the truth is, we want to be competing at the, at the top end of the, of the division. I see it as an opportunity this year. There's a lot of change at, at certain clubs. Uh, Covid, I think, has played a huge part in it. Without the crowds, um, I mean, at the weekend there at Forest a couple of weeks ago at Stoke, normally there'd be a, a really passionate home support. We'd have a we'd have an incredible away following behind us, and, and without all that, it opens everything else up. So we just take it as we go. We just we focus on our performances. We focus on our training. Every day is important. We don't have really have a day where we kind of just, oh, we'll just come off it for a couple of days. And, you know, of course, you physically you've got to be, be mindful of the sports science side of it. But every day we're trying to improve. Uh, and then we roll into match days, knowing that we've had a good week of training. We feel prepared. I think players want to put their head on the pillow knowing that they feel, they know what the job is being expected of them. They know that they're fit. And they know that there's guys around them that are going to, you know, if, if they're having a bit of a tough time, going to pull them through it. So, again, that's what the focus is all about. Well, if you keep winning then you're going to be there to be shot at and teams are going to um, try and come up with ways to, to stop this uh, th- this squad at the moment. I noticed that Sheffield Wednesday did a bit of a man-marking job on Tyreek Backinson in the first half and a couple of tweaks changed that in the second half. So plenty of challenges, no doubt, still to come, but we really appreciate you uh, giving up some of your time during this uh, during this week to talk to us on the pod. So thanks, Dean, for joining us. My pleasure, guys. You do a brilliant job. I enjoy your podcast, so uh, keep up the good work. This news just in, listeners. The Athletic is extending its £1 a month offer for all new subscribers, meaning you can get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a brand new breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts for just a quid. This deal won't last forever, though, so don't miss out. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash league show. Listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell, sponsored by Paddy Power. Okay, well, it is our responsibility and our mission at the moment on this podcast to make sure that we are enjoying talking about the football. See above interview with Dean Holden of Bristol City at the top of the championship and also keep talking about the various problems off the field and what is a continued and urgent situation with regards to many clubs in the EFL and cash flow. George, there's no headline news in terms of uh, conclusions or news on confirmed bailouts, which we've talked about in the last few weeks. But it has also been quite a busy week on this front and specifically when it came to a petition, which we hope will have a, a, a really positive effect for the clubs involved in the EFL. Yeah, exactly. Um, a petition went live, I think, 48 hours ago um, called Allow Football Fans to Attend Matches at All Levels. It was set up by somebody called Ashley Greenwood, so well done to him. And it got traction very quickly. And by kind of six o'clock in the afternoon um, on Tuesday, the day it was made, you had the EFL themselves sharing it. You had clubs in the EFL and the Premier League sharing it as well. And at the time of recording, it's got you know 182,000 signatures, which means that it's going to be um, debated in Parliament. We're waiting two days for a date because um, it got over 100,000 signatures. Uh, on the same day, there was an open letter written 
to the government, which was signed by Richard Masters, the Premier League chief exec, David Baldwin, the EFL chief exec, Mark Bullingham, the FA chief exec, and Kelly Simmons, the FA director of the women's professional game as well, saying together we need to get fans safely back into grounds. Um, So there's clearly a willingness here. You know, there's a debate raging on in the background about bailouts and government bailouts and Premier League bailouts, but we need to ignore that and push that to the side because whilst it's very important this is sorted, there is a united desire from clubs all around the country, not just the Premier League and the EFL, down in, in, in the National League, North and South as well, um, to get fans back into grounds because that is the way that we are going to start to get out of this. And, and the, the frustrating thing for me is that we have shown in isolation that it is possible to get fans back in safely. There were seven pilot events a couple of weeks ago. The government, Oliver Dowden, the um, Secretary, of Spe- Secretary of State for um, Culture, Media and Sport, has said that there was no um, bad, and nothing bad came out afterwards. There was no heightened infection rates in the areas where those happened. The continuing issues in the country, and it's important to understand that there, you know, the, the situation in this country at the moment is very, very bad. The infection rate is going up, and it's important that we don't encourage um, mass gatherings or encourage people to travel across the country to go and watch football matches. That is all, of course, true. However. The decision of the government to not only push the date back from October through to possibly March in order to get fans back in, alongside a just complete cancellation of the pilot scheme, which was basically a trailblazer in terms of trying to get people back into events safely across all industries, seems totally nonsensical. Like Before fans are allowed back in anyway, all clubs are going to have to have a pilot event to show that they can do it. But at the same time, we were making strides. Football clubs working with the government were making strides in looking at ways in which this could be applied across the country to so many different things, looking at staggered arrival times, looking at ways to ensure that um, attendees are sitting at least two metres apart throughout the game, making sure there are one-way systems to avoid people in the concourses together. This was progress. So... The notion that alongside the the change of the date where we're going to let fans in comes with a rejection of the success of the pilot scheme in a a way of just completely abandoning any desire to make it better seems completely wrong. Um, I sent an email to the DCMS, the Department of um, Culture, Media and Sport, asking for a conversation with Mr Dowden, um, which was... Uh, rejected on the podcast um i was pointed to a couple of of you know one interview with a another um a, another publication and one you know one debate uh, in in kind of typed up form um from government and both are dated over a week ago um since then both talk about the the desire to get fans back into stadiums and how important it is there's been no news on that since um, since that has happened, of course, this petition has come up and since that has happened, this open letter has been written as well. So I think it's really important for this 180,000 plus fans who've signed this. I think people deserve answers and deserve straight answers to straight questions because at the moment, all we're told that there is a willingness for this to end, a willingness for for things to get sorted, but no detail of how or when or, or, or why this uh, the, the there was this abandonment of you know, not only a desire to get fans back into stadiums, but working out safe ways to get people getting back to some kind of normality. And football is, plays such an important role in society, plays such an important role in communities. It's just essential this gets sorted as soon as possible. Listeners, we want to tell you about Scoot, the new lift sharing app for friends who love football. 
Scoot connects teammates who drive with teammates looking for a lift. So whether that's a trip to training, a five-a-side kickabout in the park, or a visit to the pub to watch Super Sunday, Scoot auto-calculates the cost, splits the fares, and collects the money via the app so there's no haggling or chasing cash. Scoot is also 80% cheaper than ride-hailing or taxis, and especially these days, isn't it nicer to share a car with no more than five of your mates than get on a bus with strangers? Download Scoot today on Android or iPhone and get £15 worth of free rides and drives as soon as you install it. Even better, if you send an email to help at scootride.com saying The Athletic sent you, you'll get an additional £5 after your first drive or ride. Go on, get your boots out of the boot with Scoot and The Athletic. That's Scoot, S-K-O-O-T, the new lift-sharing app for friends who love football. You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell, sponsored by Paddy Power. Some big news this week out of Nottingham Forest as Sabri Lamucci was sacked and in stepped Chris Hutton about 10 minutes later to take on the job. We are, as ever, chuffed to be joined by Paul Taylor, the athletic writer for Nottingham Forest. And Paul. We've spoken to you a few times about Sabri Lamucci. It was often positive last season, not so much this time around. Can you just talk us through the last few days, the last few weeks of his reign at Forest? You're absolutely right. For much of last season, it was positive. You know, 90% of last season was, was very good indeed. And then uh, once lockdown started, they, they seemed to just hit the buffers. Three wins in 20 is the basic reason why he was sacked. There is a case to be made that having backed him with a dozen signings this summer... He might have deserved more than four games, but I think you can also understand the decision when you look at the broader picture of, of such a sustained period of failure, to be blunt. You know, they, they dropped out of the playoff places when it seemed absolutely impossible for them to do so. Going into that final game uh, and losing 4-1, which was just about one of the only outcomes that would have seen them them fail, was was ultimately unacceptable and, and he, he's paid the price for it. This season, there seemed to be a hangover from that. Despite all the new additions, it felt like the same problems remained. There was a, a slight nervousness and trepidation to the team that they were really actually just the actual final game, uh, the, the game against Bristol City wasn't a sacking performance on any level. They were actually really unlucky to lose and, and not to win. They, they played very, very well and created some good chances, but it was just too little too late, unfortunately for Sabri, who it was always a very nice and very dignified character. It's a tough old job being a football manager, isn't it? I mean, mm. certainly in this case, it, it strikes me that in the good times, his tactics specifically, and also mm. his squad management, his man management, his way with the players mm. was highly praised in those times. And, and those same two things really are, are the flip side here, the, the chopping and changing of squad when things weren't going well, trying to hit on a solution and mm. potentially a lack of tactical flexibility when teams worked them out, so to speak, um, sort mm. of exacerbated the bad times. So uh, it's hard really to analyse managers, isn't it, without reacting too much to the, the good times and the bad times. But uh, you wrote a piece about the departure of Lamucci and, and you started with a, a story from, well, not quite pre-season, but just after losing to Barnsley in the Carabao Cup, which was just mm. before the first league game, a very angry Zoom call from the chairman, which is not a phrase we would have said uh, last year <laughs> or any time before. A very angry Zoom call from, from Mr. Maranakis, the chairman, with Lamucci on the call and all mm. the players as well was, was certainly a, a, a bad sign. <laughs> and then yes. you also write that 
players have been signed without Lamucci necessarily wanting them, without knowing a great deal about them or having much of a say. Now, this isn't, I don't think, news to anyone who follows Forrest, um, but it's not exactly a job without interference, is it, this one? No, it sounds a daft thing to say, but I think there were times this summer when he actually had more of a say, but equally he was still undermined by those moments when when he hadn't had much of a say. You can kind of pick the players. You can see the players where he's probably had quite a big influence. He talked a lot about trying to sign uh, players with championship experience, and you saw that with players like Arta, uh, Blackett. You know, the, the, there were players who came in that you thought, well, yeah, that fits the bill of everything that Lamucci's spoken about, and then there was others that, that very obviously didn't. And uh, it, it was something that's happened over a much longer period of time more significantly in the past transfer windows you could see very obviously that 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 they were signings that were being made that that weren't really being influenced by the manager uh and and you know it's not a great sign for any manager is it i find it interesting and i'm going to talk to 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 chris hooten about it today that it seems that that sabi lamucci very obviously had this title of head coach and maybe i'm reading too much into it but but chris hooten's been named as manager Mm. and i wonder if that means he's he's very much said look I'm the manager, I'm the boss, I'm going to be the one that's calling the shots. And, you know, if he has done that, then fair play to him. It's fair to say Hewton represents something of a coup for Forrest, given that we were told he wanted a Premier League job and that he's rejected approaches from other championship jobs in the 18 months or so since leaving Brighton. Mm. He's got a great record at this level as well. Do you have any detail on how and why he was chosen as successor when this decision was made? And you kind of touched on it there, but how he's going to approach this job, which it's fair to say not many people spend a great deal of time in. <laughs> yes, that's a very fair point. Uh, Sabri Lamucci was the first manager to last a full season, having you know started a season and finished a season since, mm. since Billy Davis. Uh, so that, that tells you a story. But uh, yeah, I mean, Chris, Chris Hewton was, was chosen... For very obvious reasons, really. I mean, Forrest looked at his track record of success, the fact he's got experience uh, at this level to a huge degree, you know, having won promotion with Newcastle, having done well with with Birmingham and Norwich and Brighton. And, you know, generally, I think it's fair to say he's probably been a success wherever he's been. Uh, Certainly at Brighton, where he's held in very high regard. It was interesting when... uh, his appointment was announced when I mentioned it on Twitter. The number of Brighton fans who actually piped up to say how much mm. uh, they they were happy to see him back in the game and how how, how they wished him good luck. And uh, you can always tell how well a manager's done by the regard he's still held in at his former clubs. And I think in the case of Hewton, you can you can see that he, he's held in very high regard. So uh, hopefully he will leave Forest one day. That that's inevitable. But hopefully when he does, he'll be held in high regard here as well, having done a having done a good job. Couldn't agree more, Paul. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's it's the, the last chapter of Sabri Lamucci, the first of Chris Hewton, and hopefully we'll be talking to you about some positive forest results at some stage in the near future. I hope so. <laughs> You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell, sponsored by Paddy Power. Delighted to be joined by Jack Pitbrook of The Athletic, who has been covering this Charlton Athletic saga, we can say, for the past year or so. And Jack, this is the third time we've spoken to you on the podcast, the the third installation of this story. It might be the final one. Can you sum up for those who haven't been following or haven't read your excellent piece this week, 
the series of, of events that have led to ESI relinquishing control of Charlton Athletic and Thomas Sangard purchasing the club? The big news really is that Thomas Sangard bought the club from ESI at the end of September. This followed a hugely controversial and difficult year in which the club has changed hands multiple times and had takeovers that didn't even come to pass but were said to have taken place. And The key series of events is that in early June, the club announced that it had been sold to a man called Paul Elliott, who was an associate of Chris Farnell, who was then the club's, effectively the club's lawyer. Uh, that takeover was effectively blocked by the EFL in early August, when they failed Elliott and Farnell on the owners and directors test. Elliott got an injunction to stop the original owner of the club, or rather the original majority shareholder of the club, to new Nima, from selling to Thomas Sangard. But Nima managed to sell anyway to Sankard, despite the existence of that injunction, because he sold this. He sold Sheldon Athletic Football Company Limited, which is a subsidiary of ESI, and it was ESI that he wasn't allowed to sell to Sankard. So basically, it's all settled now. It's been incredibly difficult and complicated, but Charlton do at last have a new owner. It's very good news that the ESI era is over for Charlton fans, an era as you've said many times, that, that just came with so many questions and so little substance ultimately in, in the end. Uh, it, it's clearly good news. And Thomas Sangard, the new owner, has really caught the eye, I think it's fair to say, for a few reasons really, not just for Charlton fans, but for general observers of the EFL. Firstly, with how publicly determined he was to push this takeover through, to get it done and to become the owner of Charlton, with the way in which he interacted with fans, certainly on social media, uh, which uh, the like of which I hadn't really seen before from a prospective owner and which certainly gained him some favour amongst the Charlton fans. Certainly also for a love for music and for playing music. Uh, he's caught the eye on social media with uh, plenty of pictures of him holding an electric guitar. And he gave it a run out, actually, upon completion of this deal, playing the Charlton song Valley Floyd Road, which we can hear now. Well, some of you have asked me if I could play Valley Floyd Road. Just want to play the first little part of it. As entertaining as, as the whole persona is, Jack, sadly, when George and I talk about any owner in the EFL and new owners in the EFL, we do like to point out that sadly, because of the actions of so many others, a new owner really starts with very little credit in the bank and needs to earn that credit with actions uh, more so than words. So we, we have a lot of hope for what Thomas Sangard can do with this Charlton side. But given the issues that they have had and I suppose it's kind of once bitten, twice shy in a sense. You have to treat him with some caution as well as, as, as lauding him as the saviour of the club. Uh, just a bit about him as a person. Do you have any idea why he wants to own an English football league club and why Charlton specifically? I think you're absolutely spot on that fans ought to be 
cautious and rather than credulous when it comes to new owners and the promises of new owners. You know, it's been Charlton fans have gone through hell on the last, ever since Du Châtelet bought the club. But even before Du Châtelet, there were plenty of issues with the club's ownership. Like it's been, it's been a very very difficult time, and I think fans have to take a kind of have to have a sense of distance when they're analysing their owners like this. And I'm sure, I mean, Charlton fans are have experienced so much that I think they will do that. In terms of Sangard's own motivations, well, I spoke to him on Zoom last week. Honestly, I think it's... I think I think he thinks it's going to be fun. What's amazing about this is, Jack, I specifically remember when we spoke to you about the initial problems. One point you made was one of the problems with owning Charlton Athletic and other EFL clubs is it's not always that fun because yeah. you have to put a lot of money into a club mm. and some, and you lose all of that money generally. A lot of owners make the calculation that the money that they would lose is worth it for the fun and the adulation. I think that's, for a lot of people, that's what it comes down to. And that I sense that is the case of Sangard. I think he also wants to make them successful and he knows, he doesn't want to lose a lot of money. You know, I, I asked him, do you expect him to lose a lot of money? And he said no, because he thinks it will eventually. Even though Sangard got Charlton on the cheap, Charlton should be like a 50, 100 million pound club. They're in London, like that is so important. They're in London, they have a fantastic stadium, they have a brilliant academy. As it happens, they don't own their, their stadium or their training ground at the moment. But like the ingredients are there for Charlton to for Charlton to be hugely valuable. And so if Sangard thinks that it's worth, and I'm just speculating here, but if Sangard thinks it's worth throwing a few million pounds at this now and over the course of the next five years, then he might be able to sell it at a sort of you know five, ten times what he paid for it. So... It's possible that it could be a money-making exercise, but my my gut sense on this is that it's a it's a bit of fun. And you mentioned there in that answer that they still don't own the stadium and training ground, so he's not um, that's not part of his takeover. Which always, again, is something that makes us slightly uneasy. But it's not his fault, of course, that those have been removed from the, the club's assets. But just to just to finish up on hopefully a positive note, despite that, um, we mentioned so many times that just running Charlton costs a lot of money for an owner and the previous owners could not afford it or could not fund it. Does this takeover spell an immediate end to the financial insecurity that Charlton has has suffered over the last year uh, and maybe a few more years on top of that? Sangard obviously has the money in a way that Tanu Nima never did. He's obviously put his hand in, in his pocket already just to buy the club, which wasn't exactly cheap. And then the uh, and settle all sorts of various, there's tons of different charges and bills and debts and everything, many of which Sangard has settled himself. The rent for the Valley and the training ground isn't cheap either, and they're on a 15-year lease for that. And it might be that one day down the line they do buy the, the Valley and the training ground back yet, but they don't have to worry about that right now. So I do I do think that Sangard is already financially committed to putting quite a lot of money into the club, which will assure its financial stability. But of course, like, you know, no League One club is exactly printing money at the moment. So it's going to have to be, uh, I think, of course, they're looking forward to having fans back and then getting the, the getting the club back on a more even keel. Thank you very much, Jack, for joining us today. And I do recommend anybody listening who hasn't followed the story too closely. Um, if you read Jack's piece on The Athletic this week, it starts at the very, very beginning and talks us through this saga. And fight, fingers crossed, this is the final chapter. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers, Jack. We know everyone thinks this season is going to be different, but at Paddy Power, we're staying positive because isn't the new normal just the same old football? 
Avoid unnecessary journeys. That's Fulham's trip to Anfield off. Self-isolate? Some strikers do that very effectively already. You see? New normal, same old football. And that's why if one leg of your 4-plus-fold Acker lets you down, you get your money back as a free bet on all football matches and all markets. The Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1-5 to five on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop best. T's and C's apply. 18plusbegambleaware.org. OK, let's turn our attention to this weekend because while the championship takes a break and many championship players head off on international duty, we've got almost a full slate of League One and League Two games. I think there's one game that's off in League One due to the international call-ups. We've also got televised games, one in League One on Friday night, Fleetwood against Hull, and one on Monday night, uh, which is Bradford against Harrogate. So a good chance for many of us to watch these teams play live. George, in League One this weekend, with the help of our sponsors, Paddy Power, please tell me which game you think is the most exciting. It's one that I think is going to feature in a lot of people's ackers because Portsmouth are the four to seven favourites at home to MK Dons, who are four to one. The draw is 14 to five. And, you know, Pompey heavy favourites. I'm sure people will look at this as being a bit of a banker of the weekend. And both clubs are in quite an interesting position with Portsmouth finally getting that all-important win under their belt last weekend. Uh, they beat Burton 4-2 at Burton, uh, ending a difficult run where they weren't scoring very many goals and fans wanted Kenny Jacket out to the tune of a Just Giving page to pay his severance fee. Um, anybody who hasn't seen Marcus Harness's hat-trick uh, should pause the podcast now and go and watch it before listening to the rest because it is one of the best hat-tricks you're likely to see at any level, including a backheel finish from about eight yards out, which isn't even the best goal of the three. So I would implore you to watch it. But this was a big result for them and a big result for Kenny Jacket. It does put... You know, it, it means that people who were baying for blood maybe have to take a bit of a step back. They've got two home games coming, this one and then one against Doncaster as well afterwards. And you do feel like maybe there was, you know, you look at the league table now, you see two draws, a loss at home to Wigan and a win away at Burton. A win here and suddenly they're going to be up around the top end of the table, which is where they expected to be anyway. So it could have been a case of overreaction early on, but as ever with clubs who struggle to start the season, it's important to back up that good result, that good win with another one. And that is why all eyes are on Pompey here. And they're playing against an MK Don side who you and I have been quite disparaging about recently under Russell Martin. It seemed to be a lot of passing without much thrust. But a look at their game on the weekend and they came up against an Ipswich side who were unbeaten, who hadn't conceded. They went 1-0 down after seven minutes. But they ended up having the much better of that game. They they equalised through um, Daniel Harvey uh, early in the first half. And if any team looked likely to win this one, it was MK Dons. Um, they still dominated possession, but they created 13 chances for themselves. Ipswich only had three shots in the game. So you can see they're both creative going forward and finding a way to keep the opposition at bay. So maybe... I'm pointing MK. I mean, you don't, in the same way you don't want to overreact to a poor start, in the same way there were, there were green shoots here for MK Dons, maybe a sign that Russell Martin's idea of how he wants to play football is translating into a more effective football team as well. So this is one, I'm not going to call it a banana skin, but it's just a game that maybe people who, who are looking at League One for the first time this weekend, looking through the Paddy Power odds, are going to think, yeah, banker home in Pompey, MK are very poor. I'm not necessarily sure that it's going to be as easy as that. Yeah, it's important not to overreact to 
to early results. But when you talk about EFL football for circa three hours a week, you do have to react to something. Uh, and that's what we're doing here. Um, actually, sometimes we kind of go head to head on this because if you want to choose a game to watch on iFollow, for example, uh, a 3 p.m. Saturday kickoff, you have to pick which game you think is the most interesting out of the ones that George and I present to you. But thankfully, you can do both in League One this weekend because I am going to talk about Fleetwood against Hull, which is on the telly on Friday night. And Fleetwood, the home side, 9-5, to five, Hull 7-5 to five, and the draw 12-5. to five. I think that had Fleetwood hosted Hull on opening weekend, those prices would have been very different and Hull would not have been the favourites for this game, which is a helpful segue to me telling you about the start to the season these two sides have had. Fleetwood's start, I would say, has been quite peculiar, uh, albeit they really flamed out in the playoffs quite spectacularly against Wickham. This was a side that we thought was on the road to being a very solid League One side, challenging towards the top end of the table, a side that were a playoff team last year and were finishing very strongly when the pandemic hit and who, to all intents and purposes, I think we, we kind of thought would not get worse, if you know what I mean. So we were expecting them to be up there, but it's just three points from four games so far this season for Joey Barton's Fleetwood, including defeats to Rochdale and to Wimbledon in games where they were strong favourites and snatching defeat from the jaws of a victory against Peterborough when they conceded two goals in injury time to lose. So that one win on opening day against Burton, which again came with a, a, a caveat, Burton down to 10 men. And it was only really at that point that, that Fleetwood started to take control of the game. And when you look at, at, at the way the squad has been put together at this stage, with the window still open, of course, uh, there are a few sort of kind of obvious imbalances, I'd say. There are only three centre-backs in the Fleetwood squad. For a side who played three at the back at the end of last season, that's obviously not enough. And the three they've got at the moment playing in a back four are only 21, 19 and 18. So potentially lacking a bit of experience and know-how at the back. There's no recognised right back. So Wes Burns, who we've always thought of as a winger, is playing there, doing fine. But again, you'd probably want someone more suited to the role. Then you've got six recognised, quite well-known at this level, central midfield players vying for, for only three spots. So too many central midfield players almost. They're a bit light out wide, I would say, and, and it's the same sort of strike duo as always in Ched Evans and Paddy Madden. Uh, generally, Ched Evans starts up top with Madden having to play wide or, or coming off the bench, but Evans hasn't been particularly prolific either last season or this season. So there's a few issues. It might be overreacting to some early poor performance. Perhaps they will settle down and, and will you know, get back to the levels they were at last season. But we were expecting a good start to the season from Fleetwood and it, it's been the opposite, uh, which you can't say the same for Hull City, of course. We, we probably thought they would suffer from a relegation hangover from an extension of that horrendous second half of last season uh, and were probably surprised to see Grant McCann in the dugout still starting this season. So the fact that they are four from four, the fact they are the only team in English professional football who haven't conceded a goal, uh, you have to give so much credit to Grant McCann because on, on a pure level, this is a extraordinary man management job that he's done first and foremost to ride out the the wave of relegation hangover um, so comfortably and and to be in such a pretty position at this stage uh, the the players who were 
part of a poor side last season that have stepped up to the plate include the centre-backs Device and Burke. Uh, George Honeyman in midfield has been excellent and Lewis Potter has really grown into a, a key player in this side, uh, having broken into the first team last season through the academy. But it's new players starting strong as well. The summer signings, Josh Emmanuel at right back in midfield, Greg Doherty's been very good uh, and Wilkes and Adelican have both won games essentially with their quality in the final third. So uh, it would be wrong to say that Hull are dominating these games, but they are controlling them. They are managing games really well. And certainly to start the season, that can take you a, a long way. On three occasions, they've taken the lead in the first half and seen it out with not too much fuss. So uh, it's it's an impressive start. And despite Fleetwood's poor start, this will be Hull's toughest test, I think. Uh, Friday night, Fleetwood Hull, it's going to be a cracker. Make sure you tune in. Uh, George, in League Two, which fixture catches your eye the most this weekend? <laughs> Obviously, Ali, it's Mansfield against Stevenage. What else would yes, I choose? I thought uh, it would be. <laughs> uh, both sides, uh, well, Mansfield certainly have, I would say, been fairly unlucky so far this season. You look at the games they've had in the league, um, they had a 0-0 draw with Tranmere first up and then drew to all with Leighton Orient and then two 2-1 defeats against Exeter and Newport. You're probably looking at four sides they've played there who are going to be aiming for at least the top half of the table. In three of those four games, Mansfield have led and squandered all three of them once getting a draw. So it's been a difficult start for Graham Coughlin, who uh, expectations, despite a, a 21st place finish last season, expectations were high. They were one of the bookies' favourites for promotion. You look through their squads and the likes of Nicky Maynard and Andy Cook and George Maris, you know, they have enough quality running through their team to make them, you would think, be a good side at this level. And it is way too early to write them off as well. But it feels like a home game against one of the sides that the, that the bookies had down as relegation favourites in Stevenage would be a pretty good time to kickstart their season. But they're not going to have it easy because Stevenage, with a basically a whole new team built under Alex Revel over the summer, they were relegated, of course, last year, were preparing for life in the National League, started recruiting players for the season and then had a reprieve when Macclesfield were sent down. Um, it's basically a whole new squad here for Stevenage and there are signs that they are they are a much better team than last season. Um, they have scored in all but one of their four games so far. They beat Oldham 3-0. Um, they put in a, a spirited display against Salford last time out, the, the favourites for the title. Uh, and it feels like they are a team who can cause even the best in this division some issues as well. So... It's an interesting one here where it feels like a bit of a, a litmus test for both. In Mansfield, we have a side who have underperformed so far but could easily bounce back. In Stevenage, we have a side who have maybe exceeded our expectations and we can see if they really are up to that, up to scratch. And it, it won't be long, in my opinion, given that Graham Coughlin came in, I think, around the turn of the year from Bristol Rovers and didn't turn their fortunes around in the couple of months he was there last season. Has got off to a pretty poor start. I, we don't really like predicting that managers are going to be coming under pressure but it does feel like a couple more bad results given the investment in Mansfield's playing staff and he could be getting a little bit hot under the collar. Uh, Mansfield are the odds on favourites for this one they are 20 to 23 
with Paddy Power. The draw is 12 to 5. Stevenage, 14 to 5. Very good. In League Two, Thanks. I'll be keeping a close eye on Scunthorpe against Forest Green. Scunthorpe, although the home side, they are the outsiders, 21 to 10 to win this game. Uh, and Forest Green, 11 to 10, just over even money with the draw, 5 to 2. And it's a Forest Green side, firstly, I'd like to talk about. They've won one and drawn three, so unbeaten, but with only six points from their four games. And I think they will be really frustrated uh, about that points return. I think they are one of the teams whose performances have been good, but whose finishing specifically has let them down in a big way, which has led to those three draws uh, not being turned into to victories, which on another day they, they could well have done. Uh, they're, they're eye-catching in League Two at the moment for uh, how much they love shooting. Um, and it's not necessarily a good thing, to be honest. Uh, they, in their four games so far, they started off quietly with 14 shots in their opening day win. Uh, since then, they've drawn three games. Uh, they've taken 24 shots, 21 shots, and last weekend, they really took the mickey, taking 27 shots to Walsall's two and drawing 1-1. So there's two things at play here. For sure, they could be finishing a lot better, but also if you look at the XG per shot stat uh, on Y Scout that shows you the essentially the quality of the average shot that you're taking. Um, they have the third lowest in the league, which means they are taking a lot of pot shots, a lot of shots from range, which may inflate those shot numbers, but which really do have very little chance of, of, of beating the goalkeeper. So uh, two things can be true. The finishing has been poor, but they also probably could be a little more patient in the final third and try and um, put the ball into more dangerous areas rather than pulling the trigger so early. I'm inclined to believe that if they keep performing like they have done, though, good things will happen to this Forest Green side. So they're a side that I'm, I'm keeping a close eye on. They've also they've got another quirk to them. Uh, their away record is always excellent and their home record often quite poor. Now, at the moment, home and away advantage is fairly negligible, I think it's fair to say. But it is just worth pointing out that Forest Green had the best away record in the league last season, despite finishing a mid-table. The season before, they had the second best uh, away record. And on both occasions, they've picked up more points away from home than at home. Uh, and if you look across each division, that pretty much only happens to one or two teams uh, per year. So something to, to keep an eye on with Forest Green. Hate playing at home. Um, and Scunthorpe, four points from four under new manager Neil Cox. But it's not been particularly exciting stuff I wouldn't say they've struggled to get going in any way, really, uh, on the attacking end of the pitch. They haven't actually reached one expected goal created uh, in any of their four games so far. So you can see there that they're not getting into particularly good areas. They're not getting particularly good shots off. Uh, and at times it seems a bit like the winger Alex Gilead is, is having to kind of do things on his own, which is, is not that conducive to being a good team going forward uh, but they have done much better defensively young defenders Jacob Badeau uh, and on loan Bournemouth defender Tyler Cordner uh, have been getting a lot of plaudits for their good performances I think Scunthorpe will have to be pretty switched on uh, specifically those defenders against this energetic and shot hungry Forest Green side maybe they could find some space on the counter-attack if they soak up some pressure I think it's an interesting game and I wouldn't be surprised if Forest Green get the rub of the green score a few more goals and potentially leave with a, a pretty big win. So I'll be watching that game closely because Forest Green's games have been pretty entertaining so far this season. 
That's it for this week's Totally Football League show, Extra Time. I've been Ali Maxwell on the line with me, George Ellick. A thank you to our three guests today, Bristol City head coach Dean Holden and Paul Taylor and Jack Pitt-Brook, writers at The Athletic. Please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed so you can hear all the reaction on the Totally Football League show on Monday. Thank you for tuning in and make sure you join us again next week. You've been listening to the Totally Football League show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all the Athletics football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. Totally Football League show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.